amazing ringtones. Uh, Arth exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the fresh out of high school, and the wily veteran graduate students. Wily. For the Greek, that is the fraternizing man, or the sortie brewing woman. And for the non-Greek, the students who have less than 20 brothers or sisters. Okay. Uh, Arth exists for those who know and are known by Jesus, and those who are just curious who Jesus is and whether the History Channel got this one right. Okay. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for coming. We hope that Arth gets to know you. You need to get to know RUF. Um, again, a good way to exercise this is afterwards, not now, uh, find somebody new if you've been to REF before, um, or find someone you haven't talked to that you look across the room and you think, I should know their name. Go ahead and talk to that person. Um, if, you're, if you're new, talk to anybody. Um, I know that's a big step, so talking to the person next to you is a good start. Okay, uh, RUF sign-up sheet is going around maybe. Uh, there's multiple things to sign up for. Um, so, is it murals in there too? Inter soccer, keep state great. And if you're just interested in more information and getting on the inside track of RUF in terms of events, you can sign up for email. We won't spam you, you can get off the list anytime you want. Um, also, if you're more if you're if you're interested in doing more than just large group, large group is a great start. But if you're interested, say, in kind of getting to know people um, in maybe a less than fifty capacity. Uh, check out a small group, um, a Bible study. Again, I've said this a couple times, but I really want to reinforce it, that community is a great thing to bring to the Bible, and the Bible is a great thing to bring to community. So that's what we, we believe in with Bible studies. Um, it's a great opportunity to process out loud all of this stuff uh, about life and about relationships and about the Bible and about Jesus. Okay. Um, keep state great. Make state great. <laughs> Maintain the greatness of state. Um, whoa. Um, I don't know what's going on. I thought, I thought it was like a buzzsaw. Um, <laughs> I thought we were like keeping state great already. Um, look, this is a wonderful opportunity for RUF to serve the campus. This is why we meet on campus. This is who we're about. We're about serving the campus. And this is a great way to step up and physically serve the facilities and painting and picking up trash and beautifying the campus. It's really where we get an opportunity to say we care about New Mexico State flourishing. Not just about RUF flourishing. RUF flourishes insofar as New Mexico State flourishes. And so that's really what we're about. And I think Saturday's a great opportunity to do that. Sign up if you're interested. There's been some confusion about the time. I know Ethan clarified this beautifully, but I'm going to probably muddy it up. Um, 8 o'clock be there to sign up, and everything starts at 9. Okay, so I know you've already mentally edited this, because you're tired on Saturday mornings, so you go, okay, everything starts at 9. Uh, try to be there earlier. Uh, you know, get your t-shirt, get your free breakfast, get your cup of coffee from Starbucks or whatever it is, and, you know, have a good time. It's a great opportunity to hang out in a mass group of people, among other groups of people, and, uh, and wait in a line. So, come on. Who doesn't want to do that? So please sign up and serve with us on Saturday morning uh, if you're interested and if you can. Cool. Okay. I think that's it for announcements. The, by the way, Halloween party video was awesome, huh?
Carol Druin, what a, what a costume stealer. <laughs> I mean, one 14 months old, but sticky fingers, you know? <laughs> Idea-wise. Okay. This semester in large group, what we're doing here, we're, we're going to talk about Jonah and Elijah. We're talking about the stories behind the people. And for so long, you've all been like, Jonah and Elijah? When do we get into the Elijah part? Well, to next week, not today, is your lucky week. Next Tuesday is your lucky day. Okay? So this is the last installment of the study of Jonah. Now, for some of you, you're eternally fist-pumping, and that's okay. And for some of you, you're eternally weeping, and that's okay, too. Um, I guess probably more fist-pumps than weeping. But anyway, I think it's a really great opportunity to kind of take a step back after this and look where we've gone. Um, I'm not going to spend the whole, sem- the whole semester, the whole uh, night kind of doing that. But just, you know, we've, we've made some progress, and that's part of the reason we look through a book of the Bible. So we're, we're, it's almost like we've read out loud, and we have read out loud the entire Bible. In, or not the entire Bible. The entire book of Jonah in uh, eight weeks or so. Okay. So why are we studying this to begin with? We're calling this tracing the heart of God, because basically, when we look at Jonah and Elijah, we're not just even looking at ourselves. We're looking at God, we're looking at the character of God, and we're looking at his heart. The way that um, these ancient stories give us a glimpse, a gorgeous glimpse of the God of the universe, and his care, his fierce love, his constant love, amidst all of our highs and lows. No matter where you are tonight, we're learning about an eternal God who doesn't change. And so that's why we're talking about Jonah and talking about Elijah and as I said, we're going to finish our discussion of Jonah in the book of Jonah. We're in the very last section, verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4. Um, and we'll begin looking next week at an episode, Slice of Elijah. So I've been kind of giving you guys the authorized paraphrase version, for those of you who are new and old alike, uh, coming to RUF, of the book of Jonah. Um, and I have some idea of doing something a little differently, but for the sake of time... I'm just going to give you a really quick rundown of what happens. Um, and it's really not going to be very funny. I'm just going to get through it. Okay, so here we go. Uh, chapter 1, Jonah gets a call from God. He says, no, thank you. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Those people skin people alive and cut off their fingers. So he ends up going uh, to Tarshish, which is really like the club Mediterranean world. And he ends up um, halfway there. God sends a storm. The sailors freak out. Jonah kind of freaks out, but probably not as much as he should have. And uh, the, the sailors end up throwing him overboard at Jonah's insistence. He gets swallowed by a big fish, a great fish. Again, we talked about we're not sure what kind of species that is. The Hebrew, original language is not that clear about that. Could be a whale. Could, I mean, they weren't doing distinguishing between mammalian taxonomy and, you know, fish taxonomy, for lack of a better word. And so, anyway, they ended up. Um, he ends up getting spit out on the shores where he started. And then God says again the exact same way, go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh for me, and call against them. And this time Jonah does it. He's obedient. He goes to Nineveh, and he declares the message of the Lord, which is, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And as we know from the rest of the passage, Nineveh repents. They hear the message, and all of a sudden they get real serious. The king downward, everyone, even the animals, put on sackcloth and ashes, and they repent. And so, Nineveh is saved. But, and that's where we want to think, that's like the clean and easy children's storybook version. Then chapter 4 happens, and Jonah is ticked. He's ticked. Why do these people get saved? What's going on? And he's super angry. 
And we heard, we read about four verses of how extremely spitting mad Jonah is. And now we're actually going to continue to talk about his anger and what's behind his anger in verses 5 through 11. So, would you stand for the reading of Scripture, Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. That was my paraphrase, I'm going to stick to it. Um, we're going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Translation, it's on, it's in your bulletin, inside right. Um, if you have a Bible, Jonah's between Obadiah and Micah. Okay, buried in the Minor Prophets. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Friends, the heavens and earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your spirit to minister to us. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm pretty dang tired. Um, And I pray that you would enliven us with your gospel, that you would massage it into our hearts, that you would help us to know what it means that you love like this, this crazy, crazy love. I pray, Father, that you would help us, help us to turn away from our bitterness and turn towards you, Jesus, turn away from our comfort and turn towards you, Jesus. I pray that that motion of our heart would begin with hearing this word, uh, and hearing this word talked about. I pray, Father, that you would um, help tune our hearts to sing your praises, help tune our hearts to know um, that though we wander, you chase after us. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. (coughs) So, it was last fall, and I was staying with an older couple in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, <laughs> not the grill. <laughs> um, anyway, this couple in Santa Fe, they were the guy's name was Scooter, which I thought was the coolest thing ever to be over sixty named Scooter. And then the the woman's name was Carol. And of course, with the name like Carol, I had to talk about my children. Okay, because that's what I get to do as a dad. So my my children at the time were six weeks old. Okay, and so I shared about that, and we talked back and forth a little bit about that um, for a while. By the way, Carol does share the same name as many people over 60, just, just for the record. <laughs> Skip the generation, I think. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know the whole details of the story, but basically Scooter, the guy, told me about his firstborn child. Right there, right then, I just got there like an hour ago, and he sat there in his living room, and told 
told the story of the birth of his firstborn child. And again, I don't remember the, the blow-by-blow account. I don't think there was anything dramatic. It wasn't a breach. It wasn't a C-section. I think it was more just sort of how Scooter ended the story. Scooter talked about how this was an incredible spiritual revelation to him. He had these tears in his eyes, in his eyes and he said, Sid, there I was in the delivery room looking at this new life, this precious brand new baby, and it just hit me, and it hit my heart, you know? There I was looking at tiny pink feet, tiny pink feet, with little pink toes, and the soles of, her, of, this, of this child's feet were so smooth, like nothing, it had never walked. And in that moment, Scooter told me, God became very, very, very real to him. He had all of his head knowledge growing up in the church. He had all of this theology that he had learned along the way. And all of it dropped like a penny into the depths of his heart. And he told me, I felt God's love and his care for me in a way I've never felt since then. For Scooter, seeing the tiny toes and feeling the soft, tender bottoms of his child's feet, his newborn's feet, made his heart sing something. And saying this, there is meaning. There is a God. Now, if I took my shoes off right now, which I won't, <laughs> won't do, yeah, which would be probably terrifying, um, then I lifted up my feet, adding to our Halloween theme, and you looked at the bottom of my feet, at the soles of my feet, um, or maybe you felt them disgusting. Um, I doubt that any of you would have a moment like Scooter. <laughs> Very, I doubt that any of you would have tears flood your eyes. You probably wouldn't be filled with a vision of God's goodness. Just guessing. I mean, we could try it. <laughs> um, because, I mean, there's a, a number of reasons. Uh, you haven't just endured like life and death and a newborn child. But partly also, the bottoms of my feet are not smooth and not newborn, clearly. Okay? I have these huge calluses, and I have a huge amount of calluses. Years of soccer have made calluses upon calluses upon calluses on my feet, which is disgusting um, and rough. And it's not a pretty sight. Not a pretty sight. And this makes it hard for the bottoms of my feet to feel anything, really. They're calloused by years of pain in the form of cuts and blisters and bruises. And really, I don't think it's much of a metaphorical job to think of our hearts in the same way. Unlike a newborn's, my heart, our hearts, are calloused by years and years and years of pain. Pain in terms of things people have said, unfair names and unfair rumors. Things they didn't say, like, good job. Or it's okay to fail, son. Pain in what we have done, what people have done, that is bullying us or dumping us, and what they didn't do, that is leaving us behind and dropping us. And these calluses form every time we silently vow to never let that particular hurt ever happen again. The pain in our life has left calluses on our hearts. And these calluses make it hard to care. To care about God, to care about other people, and even sometimes to care about ourselves. And just like you can all identify what calluses look like on your feet, on anyone's foot, 
You can also identify what calluses look like on the heart. It looks, they look like, and they feel like anger. That's what calluses on the heart look like and feel like. <laughs> Behind the build-up build of frustration is the cut of pain. Behind most of our sinful attitudes are sins against us. In our passage tonight, in Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, we see Jonah, a man who's hurt and he's angry about being hurt. He's callous towards God, he's callous towards Nineveh, and he's callous towards even himself. He has very little care about anything. Really, the only thing that gets him going is personal comfort. He feels very little for anyone or anything at all. But God is a God who has pity and compassion. He's a God who will use everything in his power to make his children feel his love. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, we see God's love in action. In Jonah's life, we see behind the natural scenes of life and peer in the depths of our own lives. That's what the window, that's the view we get. Here's what we see there. God cares for us so that we will care like he cares. God cares for us so that we will care like he cares, even in his son, Jesus Christ. So God cares for us so that we will care like he does, even in his son, Jesus Christ. And here's where the title comes in. This passage demonstrates how God uses, applies a pumice stone to our hearts. Now, for those of you who don't know the pumice stone, which maybe is half of you, I don't know. <laughs> pumice stone isn't like the natural thing you talk about over lunch. Um, but basically, a pumice stone is a lava rock okay, that you use to, to wear down calluses and to resensitize your feet. And God is using our experiences and his words like a lava rock. And he's sanding our hearts with them. He's sanding our hearts with his, our, his words and our experiences until our hearts become more and more and more tender. That's what this passage is describing in verses 5 through 11. And we see God tenderize Jonah and us to his meaningful care in verses 5 through 8. And second, we see God tenderize Jonah and us to his compassionate pity in verses 9 through 11. So again, verses 5 through 8, we see God is moving nature to say, I care about you. He's moving nature to say, I care about you. And then verses 9 through 11, God is asking questions to say, you should care too. You should care too. And that's what this passage is about. So let's start where the passage begins. Begin at the beginning, if you will. Verse 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. That's what we're going to look at. God's meaningful care for us. Verses 5 through 8 tell us this. God uses all our experiences to show his care for us. Every single experience, good and bad, all of these things God uses to care about us. That's what this passage is talking about. How do we know this? We see the same phrase repeated over again and over again and over again in this passage. And it's the phrase, God appointed. God appointed. Look what God appoints. That is, what does he supply? What does he apportion? What does he sovereignly move to his good pleasure? God appoints good things, what we would call good things, right? He appoints a plant to shade us in the hot sun. And God applies or appoints bad things, what we would call bad things, like a worm to eat the shade away, and a hot, dry wind to overheat Jonah. 
before we look at how God uses good and bad experiences, let's not overlook that God is pointing out or pointing out two important things. God's pointing tells us two important things, two important facts that we need to not overlook. There's meaning behind every single thing that happens in your life. There's meaning behind every single thing that happens in your life, whether you know that or not, and whether you understand it in the present or not. Life is not meaningless. It's not a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's not it. Macbeth is wrong. Life is meaningful. There's a reason behind its every season, whether it's summer ease or winter sorrow. I know it's hard to believe for some of you here, and I guess I'm just saying you have to take the Bible's word for it or try it out for yourself. Try it out for yourself. Try to live life honestly as if there was no meaning there. I've done it. Take that taste test. Okay? I did it in the end of my high school career in different phases. I did it in the beginning of my college career in different phases. Okay? I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels like not being able to get out of the covers in the morning. That's what it feels like. If you're honest about it. Meaning is important. And here's the other important part about meaning. It's not just that life is meaningful. It's that that meaning comes from God. Notice that God appoints. The meaning comes from God alone. Does it come from me self-actualizing? Does it come from you fulfilling yourself? The story behind all of our stories is God's story. It's written by him. It's written for him. It's written about him. That's what God appoints over and over and over again. means. Let's turn again to Jonah's story and look at how God appoints good things for us. Okay? Let's remember the story. Verse 4, right? Jonah's ticked. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? What's Jonah's response? He walks off in a huff. He stomps off and goes and, and bivouacks a camp on the east side of Nineveh. The side, by the way, that's the opposite side of home for him. Home would have been Samaria, which would have been the west to the west of Nineveh. Okay? It's also the opposite. It's the hot desert side of Nineveh. Okay? That's the east side of Nineveh. And notice also what he doesn't do. He doesn't re-enter the city to go help the Ninevites and their newfound spirituality. No, he crosses his arms, he sits on the sand, and he goes, harumph. <laughs> harumph. Okay? And in this harumph, Jonah is looking towards Nineveh. He's not looking inside of himself, and at his heart, he's looking towards Nineveh, and he's looking to see change. He's looking for God maybe to relent again from his relenting, and maybe this time to destroy Nineveh like he said he would. This reminds me of a John Mayer song. <laughs> it's called Waiting on the World to Change. I don't know if you've heard the song. It's kind of catchy, so that's probably why it reminded me of it. Um, there Jonah is, there we are in our frustration, and you can hear it. We're waiting on the world to change. Okay, we're waiting on the world around us to change. This is a, these are a couple of lines from the John Mayer song. We see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just know that the fight ain't fair. We just know the fight ain't fair. And we see that everything's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. Okay? There's truth to this. Many people at many times. Many people at many times need changing. But there's also truth to the fact that you and I are one of those many people. Okay? 
We need lots of changing. We have to admit that we change. And I think that's important to, to reorient our gaze into ourselves, even at this moment. But the world does change, and I want you to notice that. So Jonah, but Jonah was looking in the wrong direction, just like we oftentimes do. Look at the good thing that God appoints in the midst of the powder, in the midst of the harum thing, in the midst of the arms crossed and sitting in the desert. He provides a plant to provide shade. He appoints a plant to provide shade that, God, that Jonah can't build with his own two hands. His shelter is not enough. He needs this leafy plant to cover him. It's a thing of beauty and a thing of comfort for Jonah. And I love the language of verse 6. It's extremely strong in the original Hebrew. Okay. So we have, in our version, it says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over, over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. But listen to the way the original Hebrew says, The Lord appointed a plant in order to save Jonah from his evil. Okay? The Lord appointed a plant to save Jonah from his evil. Okay? And this is the beauty of the masterfulness with which this is written. On the surface, God does appoint a plant to rescue Jonah from the external heat of the sun. Hence the English translation. The external heat is shaded, and God rescues him from that external heat. But on a deeper level, God appoints this plant to rescue Jonah from the internal heat of his calloused pain. That's his anger. That's part of the plan. And what this verse is saying, basically, is if we will not participate in the inside-out work, if we will not participate in the inside-out work of heart change, God will work to change us from the outside in. If we will not participate in the, the inside-out work of heart change, God will work from the outside in to change us. That's what this passage is saying. In other words, God saves us by moving the world itself in order to help us to repent. Helps to turn away from our anger. Verse 6 points to the hope that the plant will be the meaning, the means of Jonah's change of heart. It will be the means of Jonah becoming resensitized to pity and compassion. And I really think what's interesting is the, the Hebrew word for save, netzah, okay? The Hebrew word for save points back to Genesis chapter 3. It's the same exact word. Remember, like Jonah's scanty hut, Adam and Eve were scantily clad in fig leaves, okay? After they exposed, kind of exposed in shame, they covered themselves with what they had. But the coverage wasn't enough, just like the hut. And then God, in his grace and his love, and his compassion, clothes them head to foot in animal skins. In other words, God saves them in their naked shame by providing animal skins. This, ge this gesture in Genesis 3 is contained in the word netzah. Again, used in Genesis 3. Just like verse 6 of Jonah chapter 4. And together, together Genesis 3 and Jonah 4 point to something even bigger. To Jesus. To Jesus' salvation. The sacrifice of animals for skins, a sacrifice of a plant for Jonah's lesson, are but shadows, dim reflections of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. Jesus' moment on the cross, his life for ours, is the sacrifice that covers our shame, 
It's the shade from the evil outside. It's the act of salvation that sands the angry calluses of our hearts inside. By faith in Jesus, our hearts become born again soft. Full of caring compassion for God and for others. Caring compassion even for our enemies, even the folks like Nineveh. That's what Jesus saves. That's what God does. That's what God's in the business of doing. And that's why that word is used over and over and over again. Even when it looks like just a shady plant. But God also appoints the bad things to show he cares about us. Does you see that? This is what's hard. Okay? What we call the bad things God uses to show he cares about us. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. God appoints a worm to eat the plants and a hot, dry wind to scorch, to sunstroke Jonah. All of this conspires to make Jonah extremely miserable. He's miserable physically. He's enduring temperatures well above 120 degrees Fahrenheit, by the way. Between the easterly wind that blows temperatures up 20, miles, 20 degrees and the average temperature in Mesopotamia, we have a rough estimation that's over 120 degrees Fahrenheit that he's enduring. So he's miserable, he's miserable physically. But he's also miserable emotionally. The one good thing that was going for Jonah, the one good thing that he had, this plant, God decimates. And he's super disappointed. Just like we all would be. And in this misery, Jonah yet again utters his death wish, just like verse 3. Let it end. Let me go home. Get me out of here. And this is foolish. Okay? We could probably figure that out. It's foolish because of this. Jonah mistakes comfort for goodness. Jonah mistakes comfort for goodness. And so do we. I mean, you think we would have figured this out from Hansel and Gretel. Okay? That fairy tale, right? All You know, the sweet old woman just shoves comfort food towards us over and over and over again. Please, eat my whole house. Okay? Comfort, sweet candy. And we would, and then, you'd think we'd realize that that wasn't always good. In fact, she was feeding Hansel and Gretel so that she could eat them. So she could put them in an oven and feed, and feed on them. So you can see that, like, just from a fairy tale we can realize... Maybe comfort isn't everything. Maybe it's not for our good. <laughs> but let's leave aside fairy tales about cannibalism for a second. Um, and let's look again at the historical book of Jonah. Okay? We have to really come to terms with something. If God's the kind of God who appoints things like plant destruction and scorching wind, if he's the kind of God that appoints that, we need to wrestle with the fact that bad things that we think are bad are not always bad. We need to wrestle with the fact that the things that we think are bad are not always bad. God can and does use suffering, what we would call bad things. He uses them to show he cares about us. He can use and does use suffering to show he cares about us. He shows us to care about him and other people through suffering. Now look, I know that most of our friendships don't show it, but real love is sometimes very, very tough. It's tough. If you really love somebody, sometimes it means telling the hard truth they can't see. That everyone around them whispers about, but they just can't see. Sometimes real tough love looks like going after them when they run away, even when you know they're going to slap your hands away. 
Let me give you a somewhat personal example of how God can use what we would think were bad things for good ends. I know this pastor in Florida, okay? And he got accused of adultery, falsely accused of adultery. This woman in his church said that he slept with her, that he seduced her in his office, and, they cared, and she said that they carried on an affair for three months. She came out and publicly decried him. And if you know anything about being a pastor, that means you lose your job. If someone says that, whether it's true or false, that's dead to your occupation. And if it's false, that's soul-deadening. That's soul-deadening. And so for several months, Mike, this pastor, was excruciatingly enduring this trial. But eventually, through the process of justice, he was exonerated. He was declared innocent, and the woman left the church and left her accusation behind. And so the opportunity came for a friend of mine to ask Mike, Hey Mike, how were those months? What was it like? Can you describe them to me? Do you know what he said? He said, I felt like I had been stabbed in the back. I felt like I had been stabbed in the back. But the knife in her hand was a scalpel in the Lord's. The knife in her hand was a scalpel in the Lord's hand. In the midst of being wronged, in the midst of hurt and anger at the woman and the false accusation and God for appointing or allowing it, in the midst of all of these things, Mike knew the divine surgeon was at work on his operating table. The divine surgeon was doing those things. He was spiritually operating on Mike's heart. He was cutting away Mike's sin to bind what was broken inside of him so that he'd no longer hurt himself and his congregation as a pastor. And it took a long time for him to see that. It wasn't immediate. But he saw it. Life is understood backwards, but lived forwards. People verbally and physically hurt us. People we love, people we trusted... And that's not okay. That's it. And that's not okay. But we must realize that God uses even sin to care about us. Do we see how God uses sin even to care about us? Let's just use an example from the Bible, from history. God basically takes a bunch of thieving, jealous, murderous brothers and all of their plots and designs, and he takes all of that, and he saves the ancient Aries from starvation. Using those things. And this is the story of Joseph. This is why Joseph can say to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do you see that God can even use sin to save us? And so God uses everything, everything that we think is good or bad, everything, to show he cares about us. But how does God care about us? What does he want for us? That's the question of this passage, right? We haven't even gotten to the meat of it. (laughs) The meat is, what does he want for us? God wants to see us care like he cares about other people. God wants us to see us to have compassion on those we write off. That's what he wants for us. That's what he moves heaven and earth to do for us. He wants us to love the frustrating, the careless the mean, the wicked, the Ninevites. That's what he wants. 
And he's relentless in that. First, God attacks the built-up anger in our callousness. Look at verse 9 with me. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. God asks, basically, Do you have a good perspective? Is it right? Are you in the right? Is your anger righteous, Jonah? Are you right on? And because Jonah, because God's words to Jonah, right? Because God's words to Jonah are so um, are preserved for us in Scripture, and therefore read for us as God's words to us. I think we should take this question seriously. In our anger, we should understand that God is constantly asking us this question too. And we should also realize that our righteous anger is rarely as righteous as we think it is. But look, this isn't a stop it sermon. This isn't like, oh, you're angry, stop it. Oh, you're hurt, stop it. Oh, you stink at life, stop it. That's not what this sermon's about because that's not what God's about. Look at verses 9 through 11. God says, do you do well to be angry? Twice. And both times Jonah harumphs, he walks off in a huff, the second time he says, yes, angry enough to die. In your face. Yeah? <laughs> and basically what we see in the second part is, look, God appeals to Jonah's love, to Jonah's pity, to his compassion for a plant. That's what he's appealing to. He's tracing in his infinite wisdom the dignity and the beautiful desire that's within Jonah. Even just a seed, even just a kernel. And he provokes it by his grace to grow. God asks Jonah to imagine how God, he feels about Nineveh. And he asks him to take Jonah's love for the plants and multiply it by 120,000. And he asks him to add up, to add up the blood, the sweat, and the tears that went behind creating and sustaining all of those people and all of those beasts in that city. And then he asks him, he asks him to subtract all of the moral knowledge that the Ninevites had that, that the Israelites and Jonah didn't have, which, by the way, is zero. And this song, he asks, asks Jonah to take an exponent to the infinity mark, to the infinity mark, because this giant number includes immortal, eternal souls. And then, and then, then God says, do you realize how big my love is? Do you realize how big my love is? It's way bigger than any of us think. It's not just big enough for Jesus to die for us when we hated him. It's not just big enough for God or Jesus to die for them when we hate them. It's not just big enough. It's so big that Jesus even dies to save much cattle. Do you get that? Why is that in there? Why is that in there? Verse 11? I thought we were talking about immortal souls, but also we're talking about cattle? What in the world? He died to restore everything he's made. Jonah 4 in Revelation 21 said the same thing. Jesus says at the end of time, Behold, I am making all things new. All things, including cattle. All things. Salvation is not meant to be some sort of like fire assurance where you get taken up to heaven. Salvation is meant for heaven to come crashing to earth and to change everything, to restore, to renew, 
to save the world, the rocks, the trees, and even the cows. Do you get how big God's salvation is? And this is what Jesus lived for the resurrection from the grave for. is a foretaste, a sample of the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus promises will happen. And it will include much cattle. And the ending of Jonah is not much of a conclusion, let's be honest, okay? I mean, it's powerful, but like, it's a beginning, it's like, a, it's an ending with a beginning, right? It's an inconclusive conclusion. Do we get that? Like, it's not a very rewarding situation. I think we have to assume that Jonah's the primary author of Jonah, and that he was humbled enough, and understood God's point enough, to actually write the account out for other people to learn from, like us. So we assume that, but we don't understand why or how. We don't see Jonah's act of repentance. We don't see Jonah getting this whole thing about Nineveh, how God loves them, and even loves their cattle. We don't get that. And that's really the point. The point of Jonah's story is to point to us. And to say, what are you doing? What would you do? Is God's compassion for others displeasing to you and to me? Is his frequent forgiveness insulting to us? In the words of two commentaries, you are Jonah and I'm Jonah. You're Jonah and I'm Jonah. And no one in the story deserves God's grace and mercy less. No one in the story deserves God's grace and mercy less than Jonah and us. And no one in the story deserves God's grace and God's anger, rather, more than Jonah and us. But let me give our study of the book of Jonah a somewhat, maybe, fitting conclusion. Okay? Let me try to wrap it up as neatly as we can, and maybe just prepare us for the study of Elijah next week. Um, a guy named Andy Gullahorn, okay, an artist, has a song called God Loves That Guy. God Loves That Guy. It's really a prayer that God would teach him how to love. How to love like God. That's the prayer. And in this song, Andy Gullahorn meditates on the loose canon love of God. It's firing all over it. Feel it seemingly indiscriminately. Friendly and enemy fire alike. How can God love a terrorist dressed like a thug in a mall? That's what Andy wonders. Gullahorn wonders. And Gullhorn wonders, how can God love a guy who cheats on his wife and contemplates suicide in his car in the parking garage later? How can God love these people? And then Gullhorn looks at his own heart. And he says, me on the other hand, I can write off somebody like the last check on a student loan. I can love when it's convenient, but not always, but it's not always convenient to love. It's not an always easy road. And then Gullahorn says this beautiful thing. He sings this. He messed up again, wanted to disappear, but he can't because he's easy to find. I see him in the mirror. I see him in the mirror. God loves that guy. God loves that guy. Gullahorn gets what the book of Jonah teaches. He gets it. We fail to love other people because we fail to love just to know, to grasp just how much God loves us in Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus. We don't care because we don't 
grasp how much God cares for us. How much He cares for us, even in our failures to care. We don't get it. And here's my question for us. Do you see Him in the mirror? Do you see her in the mirror? God loves that guy. God loves that girl. God loves those in Jesus. All of those in Jesus. Would you pray? Father, this is a hard passage and a lovely passage that just pushes our heart around. And it feels like tug of war. But I pray, Father, that you would help in this and a feeling of tiredness and fatigue and frustration that you would help us to wrestle with the heights and the depths and the breadth of your love. A love that's a loose cannon, a love that's surprising, a love for people even like us. When we fail to love, we fail unlovely. I pray that you teach us how to love like you love by teaching us how much you love the guy and the girl in the mirror. We ask these things in your son's name.